0: And 365 day returns.
1: Catherine Jane Granger, CBE, uh, born the 12th of November 1975 in Glasgow, Scotland. Um, I suppose I'd ask you what was life
2: like for you growing up? Uh, I had a very, very happy growing up life, I have to say. Uh, it's me, my big sister, mum, and dad lived in Bearsden, north of Glasgow, and it was pretty. Simple, pretty basic. Very happy memories, to be honest. What
1: did your folks do? What did they, first of all, what did they call? Let's let's give them a uh, name check.
2: Mum and Dad to me, um, yeah. Peter and Liz to everyone else, yeah. and uh, they were teachers. Well, my mum was a teacher the whole time we were growing up. My dad used to be a teacher, and then he went into sort of central curriculum. And are they, they're they not Glaswegians,
1: are they? I think they were previously living in the north of Scotland, is that right?
2: Yeah, my mum's from the north. She's from a little place called Huntley, and um, my dad's actually English, so he was uh-huh. from Durham.
1: So we can cl- we can claim you, yeah. <laughs> we someone like Danny Kelly said we can claim you absolutely. Um, do you do you think you would like to be brought? brought you up I know they've been in Inverness, really, in the far north. But
2: would you like to have been brought up in Inverness? Do you think? Uh, my sister was born in Inverness. What's her name? Proper Invernessian, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I had grandparents up in the northeast. They lived in Aberdeen for a long time, and I've incredibly happy memories of being up there. Lovely part of the world. Very very sort of friendly folk. Um, In your book, and we'll talk about your book quite a,
1: a bit, I think, it's called Dreams Do Come True. Um, and indeed it's a book that you wrote yourself as far as I'm aware, is that right? Yeah, I did indeed
2: yeah. every last painful word was mine.
1: Of course the first two pages of the pictures are the most um, excellent, there's lots of pictures of you um, powering past East Germans and Romanians of various kind in boats but the first two pages you've got a brilliant, uh, I guess you'd call it a late 70s fringe in, in one of the pictures.
2: Well yeah, Do you know, when we were growing up Ben, both Sarah and I uh, experienced the fringe cut from my mum <laughs> so we did sit on the kitchen table and get sort of, get the scissors to come out and my my aunt actually is a very, very good hairdresser, so my mum maybe thought she had uh, that genetic link, but um, the photos show otherwise, to
1: be honest. Now you, you, you could tell me that at six years of age you decided you want to be an international rower, or you could tell me the truth and tell me what what you're interested in growing up as a girl and what sort of things you thought you might
2: do with your life. I'm very honest. I, I never, I never even, even sort of, you know, at 16, never thought I'd be. Olympic champion and never thought I'd been rowing. was never kind of the background to me. And no no one in my family had been a kind of international sports star or it wasn't the time. It wasn't the time when people knew sports people as celebrities or knew it was a career option or it wasn't it just wasn't that time in the sort of seventies and eighties. So um no, I didn't I didn't think I'd do anything. What at did all. you think you
1: would be doing with your life?
2: Um when I was growing up I went through I don't know phases like everyone does. I wanted to be a vet for a long time. I loved animals. I wanted <laughs> to be a vet. Do you still love them? I still love animals, I don't feel the need to be a vet with them. No. um... No, no. But no, I do. I do love animals. I don't have any pets, sadly, because of, of the lifestyle I lead.
1: And uh, also, um, I, I have a question that is a relief to me, if not necessarily to you, because 90% of the people I speak to on this programme, I, I ask them the question about how they did at school, and they shuffle, and they look at the floor, and then they say, I hated it. I never, wanted, I've never hardly ever went. I spent all my time playing cricket, stroke football, uh, stroke athletics. But given that you've recently become a doctor mm-hmm. um, and have a whole list of uh, academic achievements, um, Catherine,
2: how did you do at school, <laughs> Kath? I am- I actually enjoyed school. I really did. I enjoyed my time in school. and I mean, I was good. I wasn't good at everything. I had subjects I was awful at and hated. But For instance? Uh, do you know, maths has never been my thing. No. no. See, if you were good at maths,
1: you couldn't write that book yourself. No. I think language and mathematics are very different things, you know?
2: I know. Well, I, I mean, Anna, who I wrote one with in, in London, she's a, she's a mathematician. She's doing a PhD in maths right now. And she just, you know, I look at a page of her working, and I just think, I don't even understand what that is means are supposed to say never mind what it i could never work at it so what did I, you
1: most enjoy at school
2: i loved english absolutely loved english um i still do i love i love sort of reading i love writing i love that aspect of it we had a little bit of time when we did media studies and watch films who doesn't love that <laughs> yeah that's good and um uh i did like languages i wasn't brilliant at them but i did like them i like art i like i obviously like pe um and i liked some aspects of science I didn't like the things that got to equations. That was plight your maths. But when you knew yeah, I could set fire to things and, you know, make make things flash up funny colours in the chemistry lab, that was always fun. You can all set fire to
1: things, you know. <laughs> that, 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 that still remains an option, Catherine. You don't have to worry about that. Yeah. Um, what about the sport uh, you, you you clearly must have tried sports before oh, yeah, you, yeah. yeah i
2: mean i did and and the the really nice thing having a bigger sister she was uh, she is about 18 90 months older than me but just one year in school years so we did a lot at school but a lot outside of school as well and everything she went along to i kind of tagged along with the younger probably slightly annoying sibling and she so we did you know learn to swim together we did life saving in the swimming pool we did netball we did badminton we you know Anything we could have a go at, we ran around, we rode bikes, you know, organised stuff and unorganised stuff. Martial arts? In Yeah, by the time I went to my secondary school, I started karate and I got absolutely hooked. I loved it. Uh,
1: I, 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 in your book, there's a mention of Bruce Lee.
2: Yeah, no, I did. <laughs> I had a fascination with Bruce Lee. He's a, he's a legend, seriously. I mean, it's all, it's not the kind of cliche, watch films and want to be like that. But. You read, the more you read about him, he was just, you know, he was incredible, what he thought and his philosophies and not just his actual martial arts.
1: Otherwise, because, I mean, they were making those martial arts films in Hong Kong, you know, 20 a day. I and mean, The reason why he, his came to the fore, I think, is because there was something about the way he was that came out on the screen. Let me ask you a personal question. At what stage did you be? You're, you're a tall woman. Um, not freakishly tall, what are you, about six foot? Six foot, yeah. Yeah, you're six foot. Um, so people might might start eyeing you up as somebody who might be good at certain kinds of sports. Netball, you mentioned for one there. At what stage did you become a tall, athletic sort of shape of a girl?
2: I don't think I had any kind of sudden changes. I think Jenny and I just sort of, I was probably tallish in my school the whole way through, but I never kind of suddenly went, whoa, where'd she come from? I was just kind of slightly above average tall. Oh, but it, may, it gives you a chance to be better at some sports,
1: doesn't it, with levers and things.
2: Yeah, it does. It does. And certainly things like netball. You know, I was, in fact, a few years ago in in the rowing world, we decided to pull together a netball team. And we're like, yeah, we all love netball at school. And we were like 90% all were gold fence because everyone had that kind of dominating, we can stand above people and try and block them role. (laughs) Uh, so uh, yeah, you do you, certain sports you're more likely to do well at and also then you're also kind of chosen to do but I like to have variety
1: uh, A small bird or a large producer in my ear has just told me that this, this um, Bruce Lee thing you've actually got a black belt in karate
2: Oh yeah, I thought you. I thought you knew that part. I,
1: ha- I, I, well, I have read your book, but I must. I must have expunged that, and I must improve my behaviour towards you <laughs> as a result. Now, yeah, you're within uh,
2: reach where you are right now. You,
1: have you ever? Have you ever wanted to uh, demonstrate to somebody you're a black belt in karate in the, in your normal life?
2: Um, yeah, I've wanted to. Yeah. I've uh, generally rein back. The thing is, when you're doing it, you've got incredible control. So you can literally throw a very very fast punch and stop a, a split
1: centimetre from someone's face. You must demonstrate all that to me later on with somebody else. <laughs> um, but uh, but also of course, given as you got better and better, running you don't want to be um, hitting people in case you do something to your hands, surely.
2: Well, you don't want to be hitting people anyway. That's not okay. the reason behind doing karate. If I'm honest, um, okay. but it was what it was great at. It has this kind of you do learn to control your body. It's got a lot of flexibility, it's a lot of kind of mastery of of force and spirit, and all that was brilliant background for rowing
1: okay well tell me because um, there are there are two stories unfolding here the story of uh of your um uh, rowing life which i mean in a kind of tabloid way becomes coming second the second second in various olympic games till you win in london when we don't want to give away the end of the story spoiler hashtag um but also uh, an amazing academic career that you've kept up um, and, and i say most recently and congratulations in the last six, seven weeks, you become a doctor, haven't you? Um, so you go to university. Is that where you take up um, A, law, and B, rowing?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Is that how it worked? I mean, I, I applied to go and, and do law. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I really didn't. I really struggled when I left school, what I wanted to do, what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I... Why law, then? Well, it was it was something I was very interested in, purely if I'm honest, from uh, uh, the books I'd read and the TV I'd watched. It was that sort of law. It was It was kind of the classic you know, the the barrister comes in and makes great speeches and does truth and justice and, you know, fixes the world and speaks for the common man and all that. So I loved that bit. Mm-hmm. I absolutely romanticised the whole thing. Absolutely, you know, just loved that possibility and my mum and dad never corrected me me right I thought that's a very good thought dear on you go you go and try that yeah right <laughs> thinking at least this is a good profession to fall back on so you've gone to Edinburgh to get to do that and uh, how did you get involved in the rowing then so I went along to Edinburgh and um, I went to the Freshers Fair which is the first week university where all the clubs and societies are on show and everyone's trying to get new members and everyone's trying to get even the most
1: bi- this, I mean I'm, I've got plenty of years on you Catherine so is it still even the most bizarre and esoteric societies trying to, to rec- recruit you yeah
2: absolutely things you've <laughs> never heard of I was and what is
1: this? activities and philosophies you'd never considered
2: yeah, did you know existed in the world so i guess you know as a first year wide-eyed wow this is all amazing stuff this all exists out here i want to have to go everything and then, you know, they had a sort of society's bit and then they had the sports part and I was going round. And even that learning sports, I didn't know. But I didn't know about ultimate frisbee and things. That's an actual
1: sport. Oh, I'm sure, though, by this stage, if you were your current uh, height and, uh, and shape, I'm sure when the rowing club saw you walking down the, towards the, towards their little table, they must have been all Twitter, weren't they?
2: Well, it was more I was hanging around near their table <laughs> because I was waiting for a friend who was talking to them. And then they came over and said, oh, do you want to hear about this? And I said, nope. Not interested in rowing, and then they said, "Oh no, come on! You'd be the right height and build." And I said, "Nope, still not interested." And they said, look, if you want to just come along on Thursday, see what you think. Here's a flyer. Pop along. We'll be going to the pub afterwards. And it's a very sociable, yeah. very sociable sport. Then see what you think. And I thought, oh, I don't think I'll bother, but I'll keep the flyer just in case. And then what happened? Well, I put up my pin board and I happened to be free. And gradually all the other ones disappeared as the weeks went by. This is pre-Blackberry everyone. She's got a pin board. <laughs> I had a pin board. I still have a pin board, for goodness sake. And um, so as everything else kind of went away and I, you know, I'd gone to the climbing club and the sailing club and the skiing club and the trampolining club and I joined the juggling club and all these things finally left can you juggle I can juggle okay I can. multi-talented very and good and being radio I can prove it okay <laughs> yeah, look at that three four five balls <laughs> very good <laughs> blindfolded yeah. and then I thought oh, I'll put the flaming buttons down now and uh, I said well maybe I'll go along and see what this is all about and I kind of really sceptically hung at the back of the room just thinking I don't really want to know about rowing but you know I'm here and they wanted 16 novice women and they'd about fifty-two. I seem to remember signed up, and I again thought, I'm not really interested, but I'm very competitive. Mm-hmm. That was that was the that was the trigger really. Not really interested, but boy, do I want to be one of those sixteen. Okay, um, had you ever been in a rowing boat before?
1: Once. What were the circumstances of that?
2: When I was growing up in Glasgow, our next-door neighbor's, um, family called The Simpsons at the time, massively into rowing on the Clyde, always wanted to get try and get my sister and I down because we were the right height and build. Yeah. Funny <laughs> enough. And we kept, no, no, busy, busy, no. And I kind of dated the boy next door for a while, and as you have to. And it was, you know, like, oh, you've got it's to come down. not compulsory, even in Scotland. Oh, no, it was lovely. And, um, <laughs> and, then, and then finally went down once and... Uh, I kind of did. I didn't really remember much about it. I didn't really. This is the moment. You didn't have an epiphany or anything like that. No, right. You know, people think you you step in the boat and, ah, this is my life. No, left thinking that's that done now. At least they won't, you know, keep trying to get us back down. And didn't show any great potential at that point either Mm. because it was really my sister that they were talking about rather than me.
1: I suppose um, even back then, uh, British rowing, you you did have at least one role model, albeit not female. I suppose Steve Redgrave was already Olympic champion, was he?
2: Oh, he was. I mean, at that point, uh, 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 he would have got, he'd have had three Olympic yeah. gold medals by then. But even, you know, he would say himself, even after his fourth, he was, he was sort of known after his fourth, but mainly for the, if you see me in the boat again, you can shoot me line. That's what he's almost infamous for. Yeah. And it was really sort of Sydney's fifth goal that he really got known. So it took uh, t- uh, a while.
1: I noticed he's done the introduction to your book. You, no one can do anything in rowing without Steve Redgrave being involved, can they? He is.
2: The is oh, seriously, though. I mean, he is just the man. He is an absolute legend within our sport and across all countries in rowing and a lot of sport now as well he's just he just set the bar he showed how it could be done and he just seems like a very decent bloke as he's well lovely no, nothing what's not to like as they say about Steve no exactly. he's just a genuinely hard working very modest guy he's, he's got a wicked sense of humour so as well so t-
1: tell me about your early um, experiences in rowing then how you became good at it and how quickly you became good at it well
2: um, in my first year it was a novice so you know you're kind of a bit rubbish but you don't know you're rubbish because you don't know anything else, so you're loving it. And it's, like I said, it's a very sociable sport. So, yeah, you know, we worked hard, trained hard, and then went to the pub often and enjoyed the whole the whole thing that university rowing brings you. Um, and then we did really well in our novice year and I had a great bunch of people I, I trained with and, and raced with, and we did brilliantly. And then you kind of, then you make the mistake of thinking you're really good. And then I tried to get into the senior team And it all went a bit wrong Why? Well it was only only like 13 months into my own career And I was like I know this now I'm I'm a successful novice Therefore I must be brilliant uh, help me with the the
1: technicalities here. At this stage, you're rowing with two arms. Is that sculling? I think have we got that uh, or, with, or, or with two hands on one oar, which is rowing, isn't it?
2: Very slick, oh, yeah. nicely oh, yeah. done. Oh yeah. They, oh yeah,
1: Not wasted on me. Last year's Olympics. He's but, a pro. But you did. You you. Did, I think you you have to make it. You, were you good at both? Did you have to make choices. No, no.
2: At university, we only really did um, sweep rowing, which is just the the one oar rather than two. So yeah. I didn't do any sculling at that point. It was all sweep rowing. So I was in an eights and See, now she's fours. up the ante with sweep rowing. I thought I got away with the technicalities there. Now we
1: are up the uh, sweep rowing. Well, okay.
2: generally, just to make it simple, rowing kind of covers everything. And then you have sweep and sculling. And OK, I to...
1: thank you. Thank you very much. This, th- that would be very useful for later in the programme, I suspect, <laughs> won't
2: it? Yeah, when we're trying to understand <laughs> what we are talking keep about. It's simple. It is yeah, reasonably no. simple. So I was doing sweep rowing, which is you know one hour per person. So I was in an eight mainly. We did some sort of fours and pairs occasionally. Do you? I mean, do you, Do you ever have to make a choice about that? Because once you get better and
1: better, I presume um, there comes a time where you're you're, you're you're a strong athlete, but you you have to make it a choice: of whether you're going to be in with two oars in, in in one in each hand, or you're going to carry on sweep rowing.
2: Well, it, it's more that in the in the international trials and testing, you have to single scull, which means you have to be able to be in a boat on your own with two oars, so you don't go around in circles. And that's how you're tested. So you need to be a scholar purely, you know, to get into the team and to make a point. And then at that point, you can sort of branch off. How quickly
1: were you very good at it, Catherine, because we um, started, I mean, there's a, there's a very long list of competitions and medals of all colours um, in the back of your book. So uh, tell me how quickly you became good at it.
2: Well, my first year, so I was a novice. My second year I rode for the senior university team, but quite badly. My third year I began to get a little bit better rode for Scotland. And the end of my fourth year university, I made it into the British team, just.
1: Was that, was, that an easy, was that an easy thing to achieve or am I probably underestimating just how difficult it all was? Did you have to start doing gym work and building yourself up? What was the was the the course of action you had to take uh
2: to be honest rowing's one of these slightly crazy sports that even at even at sort of base club level novice level you're doing a lot of training really a lot i mean it's it's sort of weekends and evenings and mornings and all that stuff a lot of time in the water but a lot of time in the gym on the rowing machines weights circuits that kind of stuff and always been that way
1: so what was your first big competition that you can really remember thinking i've arrived now as a rower
2: I remember my third year uh, rowing for Scotland. So that was sort, kind of in theory my first international vest and thinking, wow. And actually, my third year, we also, I was in a pair um, with a girl called Jo, and we uh, raced at Women's Henley, which was a big deal. First coming up from Edinburgh. Wow. It was a big deal moving down and, and racing in Women's Henley. And then we also were selected to drove for Scotland in the home countries. So that was kind of like the first vest. And that was like, wow, this is, this is big time.
1: Can I ask you a dimwit question? Go on. Had you been to the south of this country before you went to Henley? Yes. Oh, God. OK. I would hate for anyone to arrive for Scotland but <laughs> think that Henley was that what the south of England was like.
2: Well, I have to say the first few experiences, it's uh, eye-opening certainly well, tell me about them well it's you know i d- i mean i hadn't i'd visited you know my i like, grandparents my my dad's parents lived in upminster so i'd been down mm-hmm. down there quite a lot on holidays that's not Henley by
1: any stretch of the it's imagination not a job, no. but it's the
2: south yeah, it's very far south when you come from Glasgow. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but when I went to Henley, it was the first time I'd sort of. We also raced in this big sort of in, in London on the um, Oxford Cambridge boat race stretch. So, was, okay, um, Putney Chiswick area. There's a lot of races there. We did so again. You know, you get used mm. to that. But then Henley itself is, it's a it's a world apart as far as even Rome's concerned.
0: Ready to pop the question.
3: Um
1: Okay, well, by by, sort of 90, um, the late nineties, you're established in in, in 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 the British team and uh, going to places like um, let me get this right, St. Catharines in Canada for the World Championships in nineteen ninety nine. I mean, you really are very. I mean, I say very quickly, but you are an established international. Um, reasonably early on yeah
2: yeah yeah i did by the time i graduated uh, at the end of my first degree then yeah i was in the team
1: first degree remind (laughs) remind us that's a law degree isn't it (laughs)
2: that's my law degree
1: straightforward law degree no no epaulets nothing
2: normal undergrad law degree. yeah Yeah. soon left that behind they just gave them away (laughs) yeah (laughs) um so yeah so 97 that was my first international year so that was probably when i first thought you know this is the big time because that was the first great britain performance in 97 and then yeah 99 was that was in in france 97 and then 99 was st in Canada, and then just for the Olympics. Catherine, as we're going to hear as your life unfolds,
1: uh, there is a great dip. There's a world championship every year in, in the sport you do, but it starts to become a life about the Olympic Games leading up to last summer. Sydney is the first one. You're uh, relatively uh, new to the international uh, sphere of, of rowing. Tell, tell us about the team you were in and about the build-up to Sydney, if, we, if you could.
2: Yeah, it, you know it's lovely looking back. So I kind of, you know, every Olympics is obviously a different country. Uh, different. There's a different team around you, but also you're a different part in your life. So, you know, I look back and I was so young and so naive, and I didn't really know what the Olympics games I were g- going to I be g- like.
1: Let me do the mathematics. So I'm, I'm here. i got you. Don't need seven. to mention ages. No, no. sure. No, but okay. You're, you're 25 years of age coming 24. up. 24. 24 mm. coming up to the, uh, and you're in the in the quad skull. Is yep. that right? Yeah. Tell me about how that team comes together. I mean, is this something you'd known for like three years you were going to be in this team, going to the Olympics, or does it come to you at at last minute, or what?
2: Um, it's different I mean every year the, the rowing team Kind of breaks itself Back down again we we very competitive Race against each other Individually in single skulls And then the coaches Will then decide From it They get a rough ranking And they'll decide Who they want where And what boats And basically looking for To the best middle chances Really um, so I was put in a quad the year before, and that's actually when I had to move down from... I was in Edinburgh at the time, at university. Does that mean that you were
1: not the best single scholar in the team at that time, or, or that you, they just thought you'd be better placed in as part before?
2: The decision was that we wouldn't have a single lead boat, right? and we haven't for a very long time. So the lead boat was actually going to be the double... And um, no, I wasn't. Of course, I wasn't the best. I was. I was a newbie. <laughs> I was a baby back then. So no, I wasn't the best at that point. Um, and there was a brilliant, brilliant people around me, and people who'd been to the Olympics and you know medalled at World Championships and absolutely heroes to me. And then you are in the team with
1: them. Uh, and I got and- the names here: Gwyn Batten. Uh, Have I pronounced her first name correctly? Perfect. uh, Miriam uh, Miriam Batten. I take it they're related. Yeah, (laughs) sisters. And Gillian Lindsay. Yeah,
2: absolutely. So Gillian was from Glasgow as well. So we had the sort of, we were in the middle of the boat, being the the Glasgow heart of it, and then we were flanked on either side by the Batten sisters, and we deliberately kept them apart because you know they're sisters. Uh You know they're gonna they're gonna fight at some point. (laughs) So we we split them in the middle. Um, but yeah, because Miriam and, and Gillian had been in a double together. They'd been winning, you know, great racers themselves really led the the way in women's rowing at the time and then and then Gwyn had been in the single so she also came with a single mentality which was quite different and then we suddenly have to form this quad and we were actually put together reasonably late because we had an injury we did a different girl Sarah Mm -hmm. Winkless, in the boat first she got injured and she had to leave so Gillian came in to fill the gap and suddenly you know we went to the Olympic Games never having raced together as a crew so that's unusual. So how do you know if you're any good or not? Well you don't Okay, yeah, <laughs> but we do a lot of training, we do a lot of training against stopwatches and against other i mean the thing is we were the whole um British rowing team went across to Australia before the games to train together, so we're training you know with Steve Redgrave and his four who were about to go and win that historic fifth gold for him and and so you know you're aware of how you're doing in relation to their boats, uh you know men's eight and women's pair and, and us and you can you can sort of compare you know roughly where you should be staggered, so we knew we were going well, but we still. Weren't sure. And although
1: this is only 13 years ago, I take it the world of the London Olympics with the massive build-up, the amount of public money that was being poured into it, the spotlight on every team, swimming, rowing, cycling, I take it it was a very different world.
2: Oh, it was a completely different world. I mean, I'm genuinely... Rowing was sort of known because of Steve Redgrave, but I Poor went... Poor old Matthew Pinson, he never gets to oh, look in, does he? Matthew got the Athens Olympics to himself,
1: <laughs>
3: really.
2: And, um, and and the thing was, after after I came back, I remember someone saying to me, oh, I, I know, well done, great, great, great Olympics. And But we didn't even know women rowed. So, you know, this was only 13 years ago and they didn't know women could row. So it's really transformed now. But yeah, back then it was, it was a different world of sport and it was, you know, a few... You know, Denise Lewis um, was about to win the Olympic gold uh, on the track, and Jonathan Edwards was about to win in the track. So, you know, we had a very strong track and field team. Um, and that was kind of the focus I suppose part from the odd thing like Steve Redgrave
1: and What about, um, did, you, did you go to the opening ceremony, Was that, did you go to the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games did, I, I, did. Mean, I mean, I don't care how um, cynical a person might be as a human being, when you see those people marching out it must be an amazing feeling
2: Oh it's phenomenal and you, and again it was my first experience I didn't know what to expect you get put in this holding stadium we're in the gymnastic stadium next door and that's when you suddenly see not just your whole country, the whole of Team GB but you see every country filling the stadium all in the brightly colored national colors and then you get fed out sort of one country at a time to join the walk-in and you walk through are these doors are we great britain or
1: uk i can't remember so we, we're are, great britain. in the middle kind of of the whole mm. thing you don't have to mm. wait for like three hours to come on no, no.
2: unless you're the because um athens gets to lead and then if you're the host country you come last
1: so, so you'll, you'll experience that in london yeah london was late uh, absolutely
2: but no when we walked in you walk in and the the uh, uh, sydney stadium was 100. 12,000 seats are The biggest they've ever Created for Olympic Games And you walk into the stadium And the noise And the light And, and the feeling That this is, this is actually Incredibly special You're just overwhelmed By that Tell us about the competition Competition's Funnily enough Always tough Olympic Games Is the one Everyone wants We've our World Championships Like you said Every year But the Olympic Games Is the, the title People want So we came into our event, um, probably ranked oh, probably about fifth in the world, realistically. We did well through the earlier rounds. We probably were expected to come about fourth, maybe could scratch a medal if we're lucky. Um, the day before we won was the day that Steve and the four won, and the day that the men's eight won as well. And there was a lot going on sort of around that weekend for British sport. And uh, we went to the race just thinking, do you know, if we... If we can get ahead, if we can get in the mix, um, Germany was very clear to win, Russia very clear to come second, Ukraine third. And we thought, if we can get ahead of Ukraine, we're in the medals. And to be honest, that would be historical because we had never won an Olympic medal in women's rowing at that point. Amazing. At all in history. So this was us, you know, and we did have this incredible talk the night before, the four of us, and with our coach, Mike, and, and our psychologist as well, to say, you know what... Why don't we just do something that no one expects? And why don't we just tap into something for one race? We've got one race left in our sort of lives together. And for, you know, six and a half minutes, let's go somewhere we've never been and just see what's possible. What, what can we really produce as a, as a crew? And we had this incredible bond where we all talked about what it meant to us and what we're willing to give to each other. And suddenly, you know, this kind of we don't know how we're doing, we don't really haven't raced much together. We suddenly got pulled together, all the threads tightened, and we just came this really close unit. And then you go out and you, you'll do anything for those people.
1: Germany won, as you predicted. As predicted, and and for a long time you thought you'd done something amazing, coming third. I think is that oh, fair?
2: absolutely. It's how naive I was as well. So we, you know, we cross the line, and and there are the last sort of two hundred metres Olympic final. It's It's, you know, it, your heart beating, your I have energy in every way, the crowd is sensational we burst across the line. It
1: looks agony of course rowing, is it actually oh, agony when you're in yes. that last 200 metres? I mean,
2: it is, you're not but, putting it for the
1: cameras. Uh, hell no
2: it is agony, however the adrenaline that floods through you at that point is sensational, so you're just aware of this incredible kind of like everything is, everything's electric everything's just maxed out burst across the line and I know we're ahead of the Ukraine because I can see them and I can count other boats behind me, so I know we're in the top three so huge celebrations, huge hugs, you know, come over. We're being, you know, everyone's congratulating us and we're congratulating everyone and everything that's stationary. And, um, and then they said, oh, we can't give the medals out yet because there's a photo finish. And I assume it's between gold and silver, so I'm still celebrating our bronze. And they said, no, no, it's silver to bronze.
1: Tell me about the uh, about the uh, the ceremony to get your, uh, your photo finish, second place, silver medal in the Olympics. First British women ever to win a, 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 a medal. Um, I take it, it was one of those occasions of getting in the medal that flashed by. You I have no recollection. How did you manage to drink it all in?
2: Um, I remember being in the podium. I remember that moment. I remember standing there and never never thinking that might happen. And you get the medal, and it's the, you know, it was the fir- It was genuinely the first Olympic medal I ever held. So, you know, I hadn't even seen others. Well, you're one up on
1: me already, aren't you?
2: <laughs> <laughs> it was just... And you look up, and I remember seeing the crowd, and you've got this sort of media opposite you, and some of the girls from the team had broken into the media a bit. Too. And they looked so ecstatic, and we were ecstatic, and everyone was happy, and it was just the best feeling ever. Absolutely the best feeling ever.
1: You know, you've got the silver medal in, t- in the year 2000, and I think the uh, a very important thing happens for you, and that uh, the Australian coach, Paul Thompson, um, arrives um, with, with the great British team. How much of an effect did he have?
2: yeah he had a big effect we he came in and at that point he had won the Olympic gold for Australia in ninety six and a silver in two thousand for women's rowing in Australia so we knew he had this incredible history behind him, so everyone's very excited for him to come He's coming to britain what's he going to be like
1: um this this is um a a part of the start i guess of what became a real big thing with British sport, um, realising that we didn't necessarily have the best coaches. I and mean, You can't do anything about the nationality of your athletes. He or she is either born in Britain or imported into Britain or has done the residency or not, but you can bring in thinkers and coaches from outside.
2: Absolutely, and he came over at a time when, you know, I'll be slightly drunk now, but Australia, you know, after 2000... Massive success across so many different sports. Really, we're leading the way in a lot of different directions. I know he can hear our voices now, but isn't oh. it great now that we are absolutely
1: mashing Australia every <laughs> sport? He's um, actually now also got British citizenship, so he can okay. win both ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't, we, why don't we get Paul Thompson on now, chief coach for the women and the lightweight squads at GB Rowing, and uh, he joins us now. Hello, Paul.
3: Hi, Danny. How are you? Very,
1: very good indeed. Um, now that you are a British citizen, it is great that we're thrashing Australia everything this summer, <laughs> isn't it?
3: Yeah, well it's certainly um uh, 2013 followed on from 2012, hasn't
1: it? <laughs> when when the cricket is on Paul be honest, who are you rooting for?
3: <clears throat> well, I can take a, a bet each way, but uh my my philosophy is when in Rome. So uh when I'm over here at Le- in, in Grand, I'll uh I'll I'll err towards the uh the English but uh but, uh, it's always I, a tough call to do.
1: I hope Glenn McGrath is not listening to this program. <laughs> That's all I'm saying to you. Talk to us about coming um, to, to to coach the British team, um, and in particular, what you found in in the younger Catherine Granger.
3: Yeah, look, uh, coming over, I uh, had a successful time in Australia, and I knew to move my coaching on. Uh, I needed to try another um, another experience, and uh, you know, was was lucky enough to come over, and uh, I think. Uh, The first time I met Catherine, we were were together um, getting ready to go out and go rowing at uh, Eton Dorney where the the Olympics were held. And and then it was about 750 metres long and uh, Catherine had a a very long break off after the Sydney Olympics.
1: Uh, I mean, Catherine has uh, become a kind of hero in this country, not just for the gold medal, but for the perseverance. Um, But could you see that there was great talent there as well?
3: Uh, of course. I, I mean, Catherine had already won a silver medal um, and, and uh, world championship medals with uh, Mike spracklin before that. So, you know, she's a absolutely talented athlete to start with, under 23, uh, world champion at that stage as well. So, um, it's you knew that she, uh, she she obviously had the potential to do a lot, which um, she obviously went on and did.
1: And Paul, you're in a better position than me to judge because you're the person who a knows her and b uh, has the technical uh, background. What is it about Catherine as an athlete or as a person that makes her su- such a success?
3: Uh, well, I think she just uh, really thrives in competition, and. Uh, a- a- I think she'd, she'd admit uh, to maybe a, her training um, improved over the over the years, and she used to take great pride in making sure she did more than what what uh, the young the youngsters in the squad squad did, and she just took more and more pride in, in, and ownership in, in what she did. But uh, you know, I, I don't know of anybody who says a bad word about uh, about Catherine. She's just an outstanding person, and she always would uh, lead from the front and lead by. For example, and, and hopefully, and hopefully, Danny will continue to do that. She
1: tells me you've got a meeting tomorrow, about which more later, I guess. And Paul, the, I mean, all coaches and athletes have rows. It's just the way, just the way of it. When you first had a row with Catherine, were you aware that she's a black belt in karate? <laughs>
3: I did have that at the back of my mind, so I tried to avoid
1: it as much as possible. Yeah, you ought to stick to kind of written arguments rather than the, the, the face-to-face. Listen, um, it's you, know, no, you,
3: you, don't do, you don't do too well with those with Catherine either. She, so.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, it's lovely to, to hear some of the reasons why um, Catherine has made such an impression. Thank you for joining us.
3: Thank yeah, you. no problem. Thank, Thank you, Paul. i okay. see Take you later. Out. Cheers, bye. Yeah I
1: guess um this program is being made a few days before it goes out and I know I, I presume what you're going to meet and talk about is whether you're going to carry on rowing we'll know more about that a little later on I guess is that fair
2: Um yeah it's not Can actually you give the us reason a hint? it's not the reason we're meeting but I'm sure Paul won't be able to resist bringing it into the conversation
1: Okay well let, let's um let's talk about the build up then um, uh, to the, uh, the the next Olympic games um, which include of course in 2003 your first gold medal in a uh, world championships
2: Yeah and and it was incredible it was uh, you know the, I got into a pair with a girl called Kath Bishop we had a it's, it's I don't want to get too complicated the the boat I'd been in Sydney was four people yep. and and how a boat comes together how the, the sort of characters work how the jobs are separated between, between, two peop- between two people is different from four people different from eight people so especially in a boat with just two people you need an incredible close relationship to really make it work because you are Kind of stuck together 24 7, day in, day out, I on the water, isolated a lot of the time. So I was really lucky. I was in a great partnership. More so
1: than, than, than the, the
2: quartet or an octet? The difference is, if you've got four or eight people in a team, it's, it doesn't need to be in a book, you know, any sort of organization Um there's sort of just more room for maneuver in some ways so you know if, if there's tension it gets separated a little bit further between four people or eight people um, you can have different discussions in the bigger groups when there's two of you that's the only discussion you're having just the two of you which means when it's working it is the purest form of communication it's the simplest form of communication when you're both on the same page you know exactly what you're doing it is it is absolutely you just think as one it's brilliant and it's very intimate and it's you know you do think very special things together when it's going badly or there's issues it is it gets very claustrophobic and very tense and that's what you need to try and sort out. And
1: so what you're telling me, I guess, means that um, you, you don't necessarily... If you put the two best rowers in the world together, it doesn't necessarily make for a great boat.
2: Well, we always get asked... It's probably know, a great start. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great story. Yeah. Um, what We always get asked, you know, do you need to like the person you're with to, to make a great team? Um, and it's always an ongoing discussion. I think absolutely you need to respect the person. If you don't have respect, you're going to go nowhere. You don't necessarily need to like the person, but for me, it's always been important to like them. And I, I'd go beyond that. I really, I've really loved the partners I've had. Um, and I think that close bond gets you through the lowest points together. And it, for me, when I'm racing, I've, I've tried racing on my own for a year. And I really, what I've realised is I bring out more in myself if I feel I've got responsibility to someone else or to others. I feel that brings out the best in me. So for me, racing with somebody else is very special.
1: Are you in front of or behind Kath Bishop?
2: When I was with Kath, she sat in front of me. She was in the stroke seat.
1: OK. Uh, and I was the bow seat. I'm not going to ask you the details of that and what, and what, what difference it makes just now. We may get a time later yeah. on to come back to it because I want to talk about this first gold medal. A year before the Olympics, you go to Milan and you win the World Championship. We
2: do. And it was wonderful because we didn't... For us, we wanted to get the, the race right. It was the only race I've probably had... At, at, when it was at its purest, we only focused on the, the process. Absolutely stroke by stroke what we were doing, how to do it well, how to could do it better. I then had a say, massive back injury during the world championships which we didn't realize at the time how bad it was but we still managed to race the final and when we crossed the line I remember we'd been in fourth place by halfway and it was quite far down the field but again it was about this process we focused on how we were doing we moved into third moved into second suddenly moved into first crossed the line still trying to get faster and move the boat even better crossed the line and we knew we'd beaten everyone but it didn't relate to the result we just proved we could move that boat faster than anyone in the world which was our point then the screen flashed up saying you know Catherine Granger Cath Bishop Great Britain world champions and that's when you know that's when you think we are the best in the world which
1: takes us on to the following year and your second olympic games in athens and if you're the champions of the world i actually don't know whether i mean if you were an athlete if you'd run the 100 meters the, uh, the two of you but in some kind of three legged race you'd be saying well we're now favorites for the olympics but i know Watching the television coverage with my good friend Inverdale, that rowing is a little bit more insecure than that, isn't it? Uh, people, people don't go necessarily to these tour- to the next tournament to thinking, well, we're going to absolutely lash these people.
2: No, I'm still stuck in the idea of the three-legged race being an Olympic sport. I yeah. love that.
1: Yeah, yeah, that might come in.
2: Um, no, I mean we were well, yeah.
1: synchronized swimming is in it, so why not? You know, steady. Uh-
2: you know how long they hold their breath for. I would like, I'd love to see you try that, quite frankly. <laughs> I mean, they've got those things on their nose. I mean, constantly... They hold their breath for like minutes. <laughs> they don't. They do.
1: Have you seen them train? Minutes, you say. Genuinely. Let's get back to Genuinely. Athens. Did you think you were favourites to win the gold um, medal? We weren't
2: favourites to win because we obviously race during, um, internationally during the year. So the, the Romanians who would beaten um in the milan world championships 2003 the year before the athens games were the reigning olympic champions they were double olympic champions at the time they were reigning world world record holders they had all the titles so they were the favorites we upset them in 2003 if we'd continued to beat them in the 2004 season we would have been favorites but they then took, took those races back and they, they became the favorites again tell us about, um, about athens different kind of olympics to uh, to, to Sydney? Very different. I mean, for me myself, you know, it's my second Olympics. I knew a bit more what, what I was getting myself into. Did you, sorry, the rowers all stay in the village, do they? We normally do, well, ugh, various each time. In Sydney, we did. Um, in Athens, it was the first time for me we'd lived outside of the village. Uh, the, the Olympic rowing course was quite far from the village, so we moved, moved into a hotel. We'd obviously, as, as we heard at the start of the, the hour in 2003, we had invaded Iraq. So we weren't the most popular nation. High in every security way. levels, there was I think. Massive security. I mean, absolutely armed police, you know, with us, looking after us anywhere we left the hotel. Because there'd been, there'd been threats. There's always threats, unfortunately, the Olympic Games. There'd been threats against the British team. So we were well looked after, just in case. Were you scared? Um, no. I thought, in the way, in, if anything, it was more it was sad. Yeah. It was sad it was necessary because you just you don't want that to come into sport. It's not what sport should be about, um, and it shouldn't be political. Uh, they, we obviously then have you have you know dignitaries visiting you, so they have security as well. So there's a lot of security all around. But the lovely thing was the security we had were just brilliant guys, really friendly. So they, they softened the whole thing. Anyway, so we raced, and um, I think you know we absolutely went out to win. We you know we knew we could have won as in we won the year before, so that was the aim, and and it wasn't to be that time. So, well, uh,
1: because they were better than you. I mean, I mean, of course, you remember their names. What are the two Romanian people called?
2: Uh, how, how is your Romanian? Tremendous, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you remember Susana Andronachi then, probably? Uh, and I'm just not want to hear their names because that, that was their name. Uh, yeah. Okay. There and um, well,
1: <laughs> how disappointed were you when it was uh, when it was another silver?
2: Um, I was disappointed. Both Kath and I were disappointed. Um, we we hadn't had the the greatest Olympics, to be honest. We we. In the heat, we thought we were going well. In the heat, we were actually way off the pace. And we actually had a five-day quick turnaround to get the result right for the final. So the silver medal was still actually a brilliant outcome for us. However, knowing that you could have been best in the world the year before for 12 months ago, it's disappointing not to do it at the Olympic Games. So a mixture. It wasn't at all the joy of Sydney, but it wasn't the devastation that was to come in Beijing.
1: Okay, thank you for that. You're listening to Kath Granger here on tonight's edition of My Sporting Life. Um, Catherine we've got a a few minutes here to perhaps um, take a a step back from the the rowing and the education more about which of course throughout the second hour of the show Um, you mentioned at the top of the show how much you like films Um, and I guess uh, given that you're often away in camps and things and the modern world of DVDs and downloads and all the rest of it it is possible to be both a a full time athlete and and a great film fan what sort of films do you like best?
2: I don't have a best genre. No. Um, I do. But you I, do know the word genre. I do so. know genre. <laughs> Who doesn't know genre? Um, I do. I do have a soft spot for crime, which is possibly my legal background or uh-huh. original interest in the beginning. Um, I grew up watching films. I, my, you know, my dad was massive into westerns and uh, all those kind of things, and, and then sort of the Marx Brothers as well, so it's kind of daft comedy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, my mum liked musicals and and. Crimey stuff, so I like that. My first—I remember—I worked in a cinema for for a for a sort of summer, which I loved. It was the best Where job was in the that? world. In I was in Glasgow. was in Glasgow. Yeah. Do you remember the name of the cinema? Sockey Hall Street. Is um, it still there? Do you know it is, but it's not a cinema anymore. I went past it recently. It's been changed into what? Do you, it's like a bingo hall or something.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a, that's a that's a that's that used to be a very common transition mm. from cinema to bingo, but more lately, you say.
2: Um, I haven't been. for... I mean, it was a no. while ago when I worked yeah. there. But I mean, you got paid. I got. I mean, it was Jenny in the days. You got a little torch, mm-hmm. and showed people to their seats, and then you could sit in the films. And I mean, the idea was to obviously make sure there's no trouble in the cinema. But you got to watch of the films. Glasgow,
1: of course, there's more security than than anything else, isn't it? <laughs> and but you mean you got to see the same film over and over and over again?
2: I did work in the summer that Jurassic Park came out, <laughs> and I've on. seen that probably over a hundred times now. Really. However you know it's, it's Spielberg it's a stunning film and actually you appreciate it more and more in a way when you see it although maybe that's a few too many times
1: I take it you're not prepared to say what your favourite film is because it probably changes from a moment to moment
2: it changes constantly so as soon as I name one I go oh no hang on hang well, on well name, name me two or
1: three that you really like
2: um, I love The Third Man I absolutely love The Third Man I grew up with that it was with my mum but the the music well. love the music uh, love the oh just the whole thing Just the, I mean it's black and white obviously but mm-hmm. it's very classic and very moody uh I love that. Um my first film, which I still sometimes watch and still makes me cry, um that I ever saw at the cinema was E. T. Mm-hmm. Brilliantly done, may I say. No no sniggering to you. Um I can I mean I, I, I like I genuinely will go to cinema and watch most things, but I think I've increasingly I do kind of have standards now. I don't I don't like I like good films I don't know that everyone's probably sees films mm-hmm. good film differently. no no I write really rubbish ones yeah yeah some people love, <laughs> love rubbish I don't know I like a little bit of intelligence to them but I, I mean they're escapism aren't they they're entertainment I mean you know the original Star Wars one's hard to beat as well
1: I'm, I must admit I'm glad you mentioned the third man it reminds me and maybe a Scottish thing um, during my previous life uh, as a different kind of journalist I went to interview Robbie Coltrane um, and uh, went to his house in Hackney and went to press the doorbell and he said Harry Lyme on it and oh. I just thought I thought, wow this is already going pretty well isn't it you that's know that's pretty cool isn't it and did the
2: light come on above you as you uh, pressed it, the button
1: I just remember the brass plate that he had made it said Harry Lyme on it it was just incredible yeah. Catherine um, after the, uh, the Olympic silver you won in Athens uh, Catherine Bishop, who you've talked about so glowingly um,
2: decided to retire. How did that affect your plans? Uh, Well, sort of Ends those plans As far as uh, If you're in a Paris concern And, and have the partnership leaves Then But I always I, You know It was expected she'd, she'd got a job In the Foreign Office And very much had said After Athens It would be the end point for her And and you know We'd had a wonderful time together But then it's a little bit Like well what now Where now Should I stop now Maybe that's the end Of the would career you, for me Did you consider Packing it in Yeah I did I did And it had been A really challenging Couple of years To be honest And I thought You know Do I really enjoy this enough And do I know Where it's going next And sort of You know you kind of, I guess you question A lot of things where were you in your parallel
1: academic career at this time? Uh,
2: I was... Oh, I'd started my PhD by then, so I was... I was in, remind me again, I've got to write it down <laughs> here. Uh, I'll, it, let me get it. It's a murder. Uh, this is
1: the PhD in homicide? Yeah. yeah you're, so you already had done the second d- degree in... Uh, uh, I've got to get this right. Medical law, yeah. Philosophy in yeah. medical law.
2: Yeah, MPhil in medical law and medical ethics up in what, Glasgow.
1: What did it, for the for the ignorant out there listening, obviously I understand what you're saying, obviously.
2: but for the ignorant, what 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 does that mean? the masters. Yeah. I loved it. It was brilliant, brilliant course. Basically it was once a week, it was part time. So one evening a week um the the class got together. Now it was full time professionals that it was aimed at, which is why it was an evening class. Everyone on it were either in law or medicine. So we had doctors and, and surgeons and nurses and people, you know, in law working, uh, you know, in the courts and in the solicitor's office in all different parts. And it was very practical. So we'd have issue of the week. So we'd have things like, let's talk about genetics or abortion, euthanasia, um, human transplantation. And let's discuss, let's discuss, you know, what, where law should be. Should law be leading medicine? Should medicine be leading law? What do we do about, you know, futuristic things happening in the world of genetics? And because everyone was work, working or living in this world, then people came... I came from an undergrad background where you sit and read things, they were working in the field, so we had really amazing discussions about real world things. I loved it.
1: Well, well of course, you know, we, 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 it's constantly going on, isn't it? The recent business of the Twitter trolling and all the rest, the trolling and all the trolling I guess is what they're calling it, that whole business where the law hasn't caught up with various kinds of technologies and research is, I guess, uh, central to all of that. So what, what what made you decide to carry on the rowing?
2: Um, I sat down and met with my coach, Paul, who we heard from earlier this mm-hmm. evening. And, you know, sort of said to him, I did not really know what to do next, in a way. And I don't know. I want, you know, for me, a, a huge attraction of the rowing has been the challenge. I really, really like something to get your teeth sunk sunk into you, and just really like, you know, something that's going to stretch me and push me. And I didn't want to just continue because that's what I've always done. Mm-hmm. It had to be more than that. So, he, you know, he said, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think there's plenty of challenges we can have for you. Um, And they put together a cord again. And he said, well, I think you should try. I've never really sat in the stroke seat, um, which is the front seat of the boat. and I think you should take that role on.
1: and what does the stroke, how does it differ from what everyone else is doing?
2: Uh, it, I mean, every seat differs, to be honest. It's very much, uh, you know, you could look at any boat and you need to know the, the best boats will have the right person in each seat, because each seat is a different role. And every person in the boat should ha- should bring with them very different personality, very different characteristics. So although you're trying to get, say, eight people or four people doing the identical same thing, you want them to be thinking and acting differently and, and their character should be different. So... For me, in sitting the strokes, it's, it's a very strong sort of leadership position. You need to, it's a bit do or die. You're kind of leading the troops. And if if you back down, then they can't do anything without you. So you kind of take on that big role. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, in some ways you kind of slightly take your, put your mind to one side. And it, even when everything in your head telling you to stop because it's painful, you're the one who has to keep going. Um, it, it, The team goes pretty well pretty quickly, I think. um You win...
1: Uh is it the world championships in gifu in japan yes, is that right yeah. um in uh, there's, there's a piece in, in your book i should remind people the book is called dreams do come true and it, very unusually you've actually written it yourself i just suppose, suppose it doesn't sound so strange when you hear catherine talking um, but she has written it herself um there's a scene in the book um at gifu where you, you're going for a drugs test in a room full of people oh. who are trying to, to, to wee frankly well it's
2: one of these weird things in sport it's very normal but from the real world, everyone finds it a bit weird. So, you you know, you, one person gets selected from each winning crew and you get taken to the drug testing station. And it's a shame because you go literally, especially if you've won, Everyone in your crew is celebrating and you're the one taking off with some somebody who's now your best friend for the next few hours because they cannot leave your site you do. They've got a clipboard. i presume they've got some kind uh, of clipboard. They've got a clipboard yeah. and they've got a serious look often. Yeah. And they, you know, if, you, if you want to get changed, they have to be next to you in the changing room because they cannot, you know, you cannot leave their site literally. Mm-hmm. So then they, we went to the drug t- testing area, which is normally, again, quite quiet and quite sombre. and People just want to drink as much liquid as they can so they can get the sample done and leave. And I walked into this place in Japan, and as I walked around the corner, there was noise and laughter and it was boisterous. I thought, where on earth have we come to the place? it was a party and i was like what's going on this is not the normal drug testing situation and basically what japan had done i think very wisely rather than the usual sort of sports drinks and water that you get they had beer um cold like masses of big cases of really ice cold beer um to help you give your sample but of course rather than helping everyone give the sample everyone's trying not to give a sample and stay as long as they could in this basically free bar did you partake yourself I, I, it was the easiest way to create a sample. Yes, I did. But when in Japan? Okay. When in Japan? I mean, uh
1: that. That, that was a win and, and set you up then for um, more success in the in the following years. Even though there's a change in the crew um, when Rebecca Romero, um, of course, famously gave up one sport to become really good at another one. Yeah, she gave up the rowing to take. Uh, what did she go into again? Was it skiing or track cycling? Track cycling, of course, it was. Yeah. Um, I want to come on then leap forward if you, if you like to another world championship uh, in 2006 at Eaton Dorney um, here in England um, you've got this, this excellent team um, and you don't win at least not initially. Tell us that
2: story. Uh, no, we don't. So, so Gifu in Japan was the two thousand and five season. Mm. So then two thousand and six, we were reigning world champions. Um, the the Dorney World Championships were much celebrated because the first time really that the 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 World Championships is coming to, to Dorney Lake for sure because it's a relatively new lake in that part of the world, and it was a huge thing for suddenly all your friends, family can come and watch you. You know, they, not all of them can travel around the world. Sure. Obviously. I mean, some of these
1: world championships are in New Zealand oh, and Canada, exactly. all kinds of fast long oh, exactly. places. Yeah. So this
2: is the first time for all of us friends and family could come and watch and support. And we were, you know, reigning world champions. We were favourites to win. We'd won through the season. It was all going brilliantly. We, The biggest opposition was the Russians at the time. We beat them early on in the race um, in the sort of heats of the, of the world championships week. So we came to the final, you know, confident, but never never overconfident. And um, in the final, we were leading the way, and it was all going to plan, brilliant. The crowd's going ecstatic. We're right in front of the crowds, and here we are, you know, leading the way. And then the the Russian crew put in this just devastating sprint and um, passed us and took the title. When you see rowing,
1: people often appear to be flat out. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, it's a tremendously strenuous sport. I mean, I can't think beyond marathon running, one where the people look more spent at the very end, or a long boxing match. Um, What's it like when because it does happen when one team overtakes you in the last second because you appear to be going how could you possibly go any faster and they are going faster than you what's it like being in the boat?
2: Um, the the thing that caught me at that time was they were actually like two lanes over there was an Australian crew between us so we had the better of Australia and I didn't realise was a crew on the other side that were ahead of us and it was when Australia dropped back I suddenly was aware and then you try and kick into a new gear but it's very very hard like you said when you're at maximum to find something else and we did put in a surge just couldn't, couldn't get to them so they won Shit. and the whole crowd genuinely audible gasps of, oh God, You know it wasn't supposed to happen. Not here, not, not in front of the home crowd. That's that, the favourite's been beaten. So we went and got our medals, um, very upset and very disappointed. And, and genuinely, it's horrible sense you've let everyone down. You have everybody who's travelled and paid and wants to see you've ruined their day. And, you know, you're, you're very aware that that was supposed to be our moment and we got it wrong. And devastating and just such a let down for everyone. But the, but the story doesn't end there, does it? No, we went into a very dark winter season where we tried to, re- you know, we did very honest review of it, where we all went wrong, where we could have done better, really questioned ourselves. A lot of self doubt happens after all that. Because, you know, on, on we should have won it, we thought. And then it got to about January. So the World Championships were maybe September. So it was about five months on. And we were in the gym, and our coach, Paul, came up to us and asked to, to see us outside. And then broke the news that um, the Russians had been caught. For drugs, illegal drugs. Testosterone, and, yeah. Yeah, and they were going to be stripped of their title, obviously. And because um, they actually, the, the sample they took was actually before the World Championships. But because the Tour de France was on, they delayed the testing until late. And because it's testosterone.
1: They're often quite busy, your drug testers, it's during quite the tour, yeah. Pop
2: time of the year for drug yeah. testers. Yeah. Um, and also because it's testosterone, it's a naturally occurring substance. They have to get it right that it is mm. artificially taken rather yeah. than just people have unusual high levels. So they have to go through extra tests with testosterone. And then they um, announced it in January. I, So the record
1: books show that you and your colleagues are the world champions, but it must be that I can't think of anything more anticlimactic than being told you're now being promoted, I'm sure, one day you'll look at the record books or look at the rec- uh, the medal you may have now, but it, it, it's just not the same, is it?
2: It's not the same. It's not the same for anyone who was there. They will never see get that moment. They take photos of you, the top step of the podium, the flowers, the national anthem, the, the medal and, and the flag. It's never the same for you because what happens is someone literally gives you a line saying you're now world champions. You don't do anything different. So you don't feel like you're now world champion. And I guess for you, um, because you get
1: what we're going to talk about in London uh, 12 months ago, and I know you you, you, you you really do focus on this in the book, you had your moment of triumph, your moment of redemption in the sunshine in Britain at Eton Dorney, but your your colleagues in the boat didn't get that.
2: Well, no, this is it. A lot of people say, oh, at least you finally got it, you know, in the end, and, oh, even better than Olympic Games. And you think, yes, but for the three other girls in my boat at Eden Dorney back in 2006, the World Championships, they didn't go on and win in Dorney. They never got the home crowd win. They never got the tops of the podium, and it was crushing for all of us. And even though yes we got the gold medal, yes we got the title now, it's it's never the same to be robbed of that moment.
1: Just for the record, what were the names of the other three women who didn't get their moment in the sunshine, Catherine?
2: The three that should have were Sarah Winklis, Frances Horton, and Debbie Flood.
1: Going into the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, um, did you feel that it was? The- I mean it's hard to remember maybe do you think it was your time to win a gold medal
2: it's not that hard to remember it's not that long ago really no but but yeah I did of course it was the best chance I had at that point Um, we had won three world titles back to back um, in our crew we'd been a slightly different crew each year but we had the three world titles we were a more successful boat in the world so you're in the four here now yeah yeah we're back in the four yeah Um, yeah so we're yeah the most most successful of the, the four years we didn't win absolutely everything we did but we won the majority of it um Obviously,
1: China couldn't be a more different kind of place to have the Olympic Games, a country that had barely opened up to the outside world. What were your experiences of going to China?
2: Um, China had said very publicly from the moment they got selected as Beijing as the host country, they wanted to dominate the medal table. And China had never won the medal table in the Olympic Games before. They'd never been in the USA. So we were very aware we were going to suddenly see across all sports. And we did this kind of wave of success from China. We went uh, to China the year before to sort of just, we did some training there and some racing there just to experience China. So we don't turn up as tourists when it comes to Olympic Games. And it is a very different country. Um, You know, they were welcoming with us, but you're very aware of all the nations that we race. We probably know the least about that as a nation and as a country and the athletes we know the least of.
1: Uh, and you're a lawyer and you're an ethical philosopher um were you bothered about china's different let's let's not be too judgmental they're very different record on human rights
2: yeah we were made very aware of it because it was a huge talking point and we were we were asked as athletes you know is it the right thing for for athletes to go and and support you know china as the olympic nation and because there were doubts over whether or not it should host such a massive global event, the Olympic Games, when there were there were question marks, especially about human rights.
1: Um, did you? Obviously, those discussions ended in a positive. We should go.
2: Well, the the thing is, I think as as athletes, is I mean, we really strongly feel it's not. It's almost not our rule to argue at that level. You know, it's a political decision. Once an International Olympic Committee weigh up all these things and decide that's where they want to take the Olympic Games, you either go or you miss out completely. And it's it's you know, it's for us, it was you know, our job was to go up, go and compete as an athlete. No, I,
1: I always felt that what happened when you when you were still a kid, what happened in 1980, where amazing pressure was put on our athletes not to go to Moscow. I always thought that was a load of rubbish. If you want to make, uh, if the government wants to make a political point, then make it politically, make it in trade, make it in some financial thing that will actually make a difference. Friends. don't be just putting on pressure onto kids who've trained all their lives for this one moment were you in the opening ceremony at the uh, uh, in the bird's nest uh no we weren't actually we were disaster <laughs> i mean it was amazing it was it, it was bewildering and amazing
2: it was amazing and i think everyone who saw the 2008 drummers beating in time all thought okay this is gonna be quite a show for the next two weeks i mean it was it was sensationally done but it was you know it was the sign that, and compared to previous Olympics I've been in, we went to Athens when they were genuinely still finishing things as we were there. You know, they were opening roads. Oh, we've just made this. Well, league. they
1: had that great joke, didn't they? The very last thing when the guy ran across the uh, the stadium and put in the last nail during the opening ceremony, didn't they?
2: Absolutely. Whereas yeah. in Beijing, Beijing were kind of ready. You know, kind of as Athens finished, Beijing we're like, we're ready to go now. Yeah. Four come, years come ahead. Come out. Yeah, <laughs> come on. So Beijing, you know, had this different feel where everything was going to be almost perfect and everything was going to look perfect. And, you know, the impression China was going to give was what a successful and fantastic country and the standards that they lived to. Um, so it was, it was you, you were kind of aware of that when you were there. There was such a pride in putting on this amazing show and certainly the opening ceremony proved that. What about the to- what about the actual
1: uh, Olympics themselves, the competition for you?
2: Um, yeah I don't have the happiest memories of Beijing personally
1: well uh, as you say world champions three times coming up to it mm-hmm. um, well you already named the you've, I mean, you've given the, the spectre a name uh, you are beaten by China how did that happen
2: well we were we were never going to meet them. the way the, the, the rowing competition was we were opposite sides of the draw to them to the Chinese crew so we we raced the heat and we broke the Olympic record time in our heat so we knew we were going very well and then they raced it and broke it by a little bit more so we knew they were going very well as well we wouldn't meet until the final and that's quite tough it means you get one chance to get it right they had changed their crew from when we'd raced them last so it was a, a slightly different lineup um, and quite unpredictable four girls on an outboard motor <laughs> I wish I could say that I wish I was beaten by that <laughs> Um, and you know, But for us we discussed it And it was such an important race to us it was At that point women's rowing had never won an Olympic gold medal This was seen as the best chance in history To get the Olympic gold it, it was a very emotional race for us as well But we also knew physically and technically We were at the top of our game So everything seemed to be coming together and uh, the race unfolded exactly as we discussed and as we planned. You know, for seventeen, eighteen hundred 1,800 metres of the 2,000 metre course that we race on, we were leading. And we were, you know, you had the Olympic gold in your hand at that point. You were in front of these crowds, and you were in the leading position, and you're looking back on the crews behind you, and it's all there. And then and then that's when the Chinese, you know, I know the Russians in 2006 kind of beat us in a sort of toss sort of across the line. In China, they just mounted this sprint that we had never seen and couldn't match and you are physically and mentally trying to go through everything you can think of to react and respond and the boat wasn't responding we couldn't match their speed so you try something else and that's not working you try something else and you're running out of space running out of time and nothing is matching their speed and their level then they're starting to pull ahead and you know there's meters left to try and try and find the magic and they beat us by about a second on the line and obviously in front of the Euphoric Chinese crowd, you know, absolutely the home win again for them. And we just, you know, absolutely four, four girls hanging their heads and just horror that it's over.
1: You hear, uh, obviously, on the side that that kind of honking noise as the boats cross mm-hmm. the line, mm-hmm. and then you stop rowing. Yeah. Can you remember what you felt in the, in the, in the second place boat, you um, personally?
2: I remember the first initial thought you, you know, you're physically exhausted, mentally worn out, drained, everything emotionally gone. First thing that came through was we've come second. That is absolutely immediate, we've come second. My instant, and your your thoughts are so fast because of the adrenaline, my instant thought was, okay, how do we improve on that for the next race? Because everything we'd done for four years was how to improve, how to improve, how to improve, whether we won or lost. First instant thing was then, how do we improve? And then that came crashing straight after that. The next thought was, there is no next time. There is no next race. And that's it, and at that point, everything hits you at once it's like being hit by a wall and we lost our chance and that was the best chance we'd have and possibly ever have and we didn't get it and you can't fix it you can't change it you can't go back and start again you don't get another second chance
1: and for the boat that is favourite or expected to win and if you if you if you get a surprise bronze you're on the podium delighted I took the opportunity last night to look on YouTube at the, at the ceremony for that silver medal uh, that you all won um I think it's fair to... I, I don't want to uh, hyperbolise here, but the team looks very, very upset. You you look devastated on the podium.
2: Yeah, I was. And the thing with rowing is you come straight from the water, straight to the, the sort of media lineup, So we talked to BBC straight away and then went straight from that to the medal. So most sports, you see in athletics, you see in swimming, you see in cycling, they go off and get changed and come back. And rowing, you go straight from the water to the podium. There is absolutely no second... There's no time to gather yourself... To, to have the deep breath, to get changed and say, we need to get through this and then we'll be OK and then we can break down if we want. You are straight onto that podium next to the victorious crew who are celebrating their gold medal, the one that you desperately wanted. And it is ju- it's just so tough. It's so hard to bear. And and it's, I think we saw it last year in London, the, the crews that were disappointed or the... the athletes are disappointed across sports the public understood because they, by London everyone got why sport matters so much to athletes in Beijing it was less so so people kind of were like gosh they're really upset for silver that's odd but for for me it was it was genuinely a failure it was genuinely the, the silver I won in Sydney like I said I could not have been happier, I was beaming the sun was shining we're in Australia it was all brilliant it was a surprise it was a joy same color medal eight years on after eight years more work and dedication and commitment and all that stuff and the only thing we went for the gold the only thing we accepted was the gold and for us and for me particularly i felt absolute failure i felt i was a failure i felt i, felt, I remember seeing friends in the crowd and thinking they have flown out to china to watch this and i've let them down and what a waste this must be for them and i can't believe that they're watching this
1: why did you carry on you, no, one would have, no one would have batted an eyelid if you said, right, I've been doing this for a long, long time now. I've got my three silver medals. And was it the lure of London or was there something else driving you on?
2: No, it wasn't the lure of London. I That's think a
1: long way off, of course. It's four well, years more.
2: Yeah, it was. But I think a lot of people think, oh, yeah, it was home games. Of course you wanted to continue. Um, but that would never have been enough. Not not from where I was, what I'd done, what I would take to go on for four more years. The, the idea of the home Olympics wasn't the biggest draw. Um, I did take a few months to make a decision. I didn't know straight away I wanted to carry on. I was in a a really dark place, and I think I had to question um, why I would continue. Um, What if I could cope if I didn't go on and win? Was I just chasing this one impossible medal? Because if that's it, then that's quite an unhealthy probably way to live, and I couldn't necessarily live with myself or other other people trying to live with me for four years trying to this one desperate thing. But if I if I loved what I did, if I still loved the challenge, if I still got excited about it, if I still felt there was more to get and more to give, and I could sort of almost refresh the whole thing, then it was the right thing to do. you change from being in the four, you've become a double scholar
1: again, um, and Anna Watkins comes into your... I, I say comes into your life like it's some kind of dating game, <laughs> but uh, I, I guess the coaches said, right, here's something we can do with these two, yeah?
2: Yeah, well, the funny thing is, we'd both been on the team together since 2005 when Anna joined, and yet we didn't get in a boat together until 2010, so we would five years being the same team, but not really knowing each other well, and it, it, it was that, I mean, you joke, but it is a little bit like the dating game when the first time we got put together, you don't quite know. We don't quite know how you get on, if it'll work, what you're going to talk about. You know, it's that initial getting together stage. And
1: how did you? How quickly did you know? Okay, we can really do this again.
2: We knew on paper. it was one of those things. You know, on paper your strengths and weaknesses, and we knew actually we should work very well together. But there is something, not magical, but it's something that a little bit of an X factor when you don't know if you'll work together properly. You know, at every level. And we went, got in a boat together for the first time in January 2010. I still remember. We were in Portugal in training camp. Mm-hmm. And um, we just, it was just a normal training session. We row with everyone all the time. We got put together for the first time. Off you go. Just go and, you know, have a normal session on the water. And then within, oh, you know, literally 30 seconds, both of us just went, oh, this is different. The boat was moving well, was Absolutely. it? Absolutely. The boat was moving well, smooth, easy. Communication was simple. Just clicked. Absolutely just clicked. What kind of a rower is Anna? Is that a stupid question? Is she different from you? Is... She's um, yeah, well, she's obviously a pretty fantastic, world Olympic yeah. champion, and all that. Yeah, um, she is. We we work brilliantly together. Um, we're very similar in a lot of ways, very different in a lot of ways as well, which actually keeps it great. Mm-hmm. Uh, we personality wise, I and mean, we both we both really want to enjoy what we do. We've got a real, real fun aspect to it. We love we love enjoying it. Um, she's very competitive, very driven, very focused on what we want to do. You know, very ambitious, and we had that in common. But she is, you know, I'm the kind of, I guess, if you just make it simple, the arts background, she's the maths background. Right. So, with, in the boat, how we operate, I kind of run a lot on instinct and feel and kind of just you know, know this or know that roughly. Animal, like her detail and analysis and sort of looking at the intricate detail of the numbers and explaining things and working down why they make sense and why they don't, that's her absolute strength.
1: Well, you've done very well then, not to make a sound at like the boring one. Well done. <laughs> that, was, that was very, very decent of you. Um, you talked about London not being enough of a uh, spur four years earlier to, to drive you on through the, four, the other three and a half years of training. How much was home advantage in your mind as you got nearer yourself and Anna towards the Olympic Games? Is it really an advantage when you see the Chinese girls beat you uh, four years earlier?
2: Yeah, it is an advantage. Um, I, ab- I genuinely believe we would have won... Wherever the Olympics had been, we were—we got ourselves to the position that you know we were the best in the world, and just had to sort of deliver on the day. Um, but I made the decision Beijing to continue irrespective of home Olympics or not. However, as soon as I made that commitment, the closer we got to the games, the more you realized just how different this was going to be. So in previous Olympics, six to eight months, maybe twelve months, people start talking about the Olympic Games, and often it's, are they this year? Where are they? You know all oh, that. Three years before the Olympics, people started doing stuff on the London 2012. There was a countdown, you know, we had three years to go, two years to go, one year to go, so many months, so many days, all these different things. The countdown clock came up in, in Leicester Square in London. There was so much focus in the Olympics that we knew this was going to be dramatically different. And we knew that the, the public support was likely to be immense, but we didn't know until actually the Games time just how immense.
1: Did you get to the opening ceremony this time? No. But
3: it was no. absolutely
2: amazing. <laughs> We watched
3: it. Yeah, we watched it too, right yeah.
2: to the bitter end. Every single last country we watched, because obviously Britain was last to come in. I mean, you
1: must regret not being in the Ocean for that, because that really was something else, I thought.
2: Well, we Different did... from Beijing, but absolutely extraordinary. No, we did everything we could, and the, the sort of general understanding was if you competed in the first 48 hours, you wouldn't go, because it's a very draining experience. Yeah, of course. You're on your feet you're, for long, it's late night. Noise, all, yeah. Yeah, all those things, yeah. So, anyone competing Saturday or Sunday? shouldn't go we were competing Monday morning so we figured we might be able to sneak in so we talked to everyone we could the coaches were very much don't do it we still You're trying to find them. somebody who said yeah it's a great idea well we spoke to people at the British Olympic Association who did everything they could but they said we cannot guarantee you get into your beds before three o'clock in the morning and at that point when you've trained your whole life for some races you know a brilliant night out lovely however
1: where did you stay? Where were you staying, uh, yourself and Anna, at this time? In the Olympic Village or...?
2: No, the whole British rowing team stayed in a hotel right by the rowing lake. So okay. we made everything as simple as we could.
1: OK, so my next question is redundant. I'm just going to ask if you were aware, because, you know, I've lived in Central London all my life. The city was absolutely transformed by the President of the Olympics. People were nice to each other also. I'm not making that up now, retrospectively. It really was transformed by the Olympic Games. Talk to us about the competition itself and getting to the final and the final itself.
2: So we were on... There was four days of rowing finals. We were on the third day. Um, So what happened first was on the Wednesday. You know, at that point, we still hadn't got any gold medals for Great Britain across the whole team. Team GB hadn't won anything at the gold. And there was, you know, we'd started this wonderful opening ceremony, first few days, exciting races. Then there was a little bit of a... When are we going to win? Blinking swimmers, yeah. Well, disappoint. And then, you know, poor Mark Cavendish, you know, the road races didn't well, go Well, right. he didn't. You've
1: got to keep up, haven't you? If you're going to be a sprint, <laughs> you've got to keep up with the people <laughs> winning the race, it seems to me. But
2: However, it was a real lesson. And you know what? It might be your home games. It don't come easy because people want to beat you at home. So you might be even favourites, but you become the target because if people can beat the British team at the British Olympics, then everyone else loves it. So we knew it was going to be harder than we ever thought. Wednesday came, the first rowing finals and Heather and Helen were in the women's pair and they won the gold as we expect them to and and the whole place went nuts and suddenly rowing was this big focal point and we still had two days to wait till we raced and it was a little bit like we want our goal now we were ready we were so ready it must be
1: appalling if you if you think you're ready you, you've done all the yeah. physical work presumably you've got psychologists and all the rest <laughs> keeping you in the in the spot um mm. just sitting around watching i guess others at rowing and uh, stuff on television must be very very difficult
2: yeah you watch other people racing and winning and you want to be doing it yourself and and some years i've got to you know major championships and thought well, another few days be handy now we could do a bit more training this was like we're ready we don't need any more we're, we're absolutely this is the moment for us so it was kind of countdown stuff and then in the morning of the final we we arrived at the course and you know God, of course it's nervous you know, this is it and the biggest question for us is could we deliver it could we deliver it with the pressure and the expectation and the 30,000 strong crowd and then the millions watching and everybody knew it. everyone we walked past we walked down we you know we, we arrived by boats We were on the river and then we the guys who drove the boat to the people who let us in security to the games makers everyone knew us and everyone knew what today was and everyone looked at you and gave you the look in the eye of here we go
1: let me ask you a stupid question sport is a competition not an exhibition did you know you were going to win that day
2: no you never know never know
1: well, the race, as, as we know, uh, was between yourselves, Australia, Poland, China, uh, New Zealand and the USA and your crew. And uh, well, just for the sake of it, for the hell of it, let's hear um, the closing moments of the race as it unfolded here on Talk Sport.
2: I tell you what, we're just going to bring you here an absolutely historical moment this is the rowing goal that everybody involved in Great British Rowing wanted to see because on the verge of glory, once more Cathy Granger and Anna Watkins and of course for Cathy Granger this is the moment three silvers at three Olympic
1: Games distraught and despair in Beijing, she was going to give it all up but that's turned to absolute delight this time around she's got her podium finish that she wanted and Great Britain has its sixth gold medal at these games. Well done Catherine Granger and Anna Watkins. The ever overexcitable Mark Saggers there um, describing your victory. He was one of 30,000 people who witnessed it.
2: I oh, know, it was just a magical day and and we were coming into the, the you know, last few hundred metres and the crowd was deafening to the point you know i'll never experience anything like that again the noise and the it wasn't just the the sound levels the the, the sort of emotional reaction behind that crowd was utterly sensational and you know yes we were leading in australia we still attacking the whole way down the course but we were leading and we you know we were we were holding where we wanted and the crowd makes you feel invincible
1: i'm glad you felt invincible because of course you've
2: been caught twice on the line in the previous olympics did, did that cross your mind as you were going along no, and Anna actually ironically said sort of the day before, two days before, she said, you know, if we're leading and we're coming and people try to attack, we'll be OK. And I said, yeah, I know, I know we're going brilliantly, we'll be fine. And then she kept saying it. I was going, why are you still saying this? And she said, oh, I, want, I just want to make sure there's no demons left. She's over got you down dating. as a loser, Catherine. Oh, I think she was worried I was going to have some sort of like, I don't know, panicked reaction. And I was like, there's no way this feels so different. And so, we you know, we were going to have anything that anyone was ready to attack us with. We'd have an answer.
1: Um, obviously, tremendous elation. Compare the medal ceremonies of the previous three you would uh, experienced and later endured.
2: Uh you know, I said up until that point, Sydney was probably the happiest moment of my whole career. Just sitting, waiting for that, that first ever Olympic medal. Um, this one was this one was a combination of everything. It was it wasn't as emotional as I thought it might be. Although the moment of the flag was was emotional. Um, but it's almost you know it's it's a kind of absolute euphoric you're just a ridiculous state of excitement happiness. You keep seeing people, You know, we could see family and friends, we saw camera people we knew, we saw um, some of the media, we saw some of the sports staff, even the people giving us our medals we knew. You know, it felt kind of, it really felt like this was our Olympics and generally people, fe- you just were aware how happy people were for us and what a moment it was for everyone. So it was on a much bigger scale than any other Olympics because this one everyone joined in with. Is there a
1: moment when you get away from the cameras and the crowd where there's just you and and Anna, was there a moment when, when the two of you got a chance to look at each other and say something?
2: Well, the nicest thing is when you cross the line with us. You know, we're in, we're in the middle of the water and no one can reach us initially. And you just have this little cocoon moment where, yes, there's deafening uh, cheering and applause around us, but it's just the two of us and that's how it should be. And it's very difficult for the person who's in the front of the boat to turn around and actually
1: confront the person who's behind them it's
2: yeah. very awkward yeah. like, do you get out do you jump in like you know in, in in sydney matthew pinson sort of clambered down the boat to try and reach steve and then fill in the water and you know there's all. how do you do this but i kind not of turn around to anna and then i kind of laid back and she leaned forward and that was our little moment together
1: catherine you finally won that gold medal in the olympics um one of the things that caused was so striking about the po- the olympics was the, the gold post boxes um where, where's yours uh, mine's up in Aberdeen were the, were the only Aberdonian to, to win uh, no there's no. four
2: gold post boxes
1: oh is that right absolutely because oh, uh, in Yorkshire in virtually every post box is now gold I know I there's
2: far more than everyone thinks everywhere and and that was one of the brilliant strokes genius in the Royal Mail is that they actually united the whole country so I you know there's people all over the country going oh I've got gold post box near me and it's it, near it, your it,
1: granny house, I think in Aberdeen is that the deal
2: Um, the thing is they don't ask you so no. it, goes, it, it gets painted the night you, we won um, so I my remember speaking to my mum and she was like well it be Glasgow, because that's where you're born and bred, or Edinburgh, since we start rowing, or you know, I'm, I'm based down south, mm-hmm. and I might be down there, and then it went to Aberdeen, which confused everyone because mm-hmm. I've never really been from Aberdeen. No. But the lovely thing is, my family were based there for a long time, so sort of seen as Aberdeen-based, and also my gran, who is um, just as, I mean, she's passed away now, sadly, but she was such an amazing role model my growing up time, and absolutely love my gran to bits. And she worked in this. um kind of secondhand shop for years and I used to go there once a week on a Thursday afternoon and help her out and meet all the old ladies with great chats and really lovely 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 memories lovely times there and just by chance the postbox they chose was the one right outside her shop
1: uh, um, well uh, just by chance you say where, where's Anna from incidentally she's from Stoke uh, she, so Stoke and Trent I presume he's got mm. one as well that's, mm. how, that's how it all worked Leak
2: precisely so she's got a Leak postbox
1: okay listen th- thank you very much indeed for that one of the things that again has been a theme of your life is you stayed in education um, getting uh, getting more and more um, awards and uh, certificates and things and most recently and I think it's very recent, I, indeed, recent enough, I can congratulate you and last month you got your PhD you've become Dr Catherine Granger now Remind people what this PhD is in.
2: It's specifically in the whole life tariffs, the idea of of locking people away for life, meaning life, and meaning it with no hope of review. So it's a very extreme end of murder. It's really quite a a sort of... Is that why people shorthand it as as homicide? Um, I generally call it homicide because when I talk about doing a PhD in murder, then people... Starting Tiger Impressions. There's been a murder. I, I
1: hear it in your voice. Uh, yes. I resisted because you know <laughs> it, it's not. It's not. It's not. It's not the same kind of a, a tone or anything, is it? Oh, um,
2: well, I do the Glasgow twang every now yeah, and again. Yeah, so yeah. It, it
1: does exist there. So uh, homicides just a little bit easier. Um, what, what can you make any use of this as you go forward in your life, or was it an academic exercise?
2: I did it mainly because, um, you know, I, I, there's no way I could become a lawyer or practice while I'm training full time and competing full time mm-hmm. just because the hours. So I'd always want to do something though alongside and that, so the PhD works. It's a very flexible degree. Now, if I want to then go into it, yes, I can make use of it. And I could go into, you know, I could continue in academia. I could, you know, pure sort of thing, You could do lecturing and talks and that. You can go into the the Ministry of Justice side of things. There's a lot of things I could do with it specifically, or I could go into law itself, um, or I could do nothing. And the great thing is I I did it for its own reasons. I didn't do it necessarily with a view to anything. So if I use it, great. If I never use it, I'm OK with that too.
1: Um, I guess... I didn't know where we were going with this but I now know where I'm going with it um, something happens every now and then in this country, um, something particularly grotesque happens, and people are, for, are forever shouting about bringing back the death penalty. Um, I dare say you probably wouldn't agree with that, but what about the idea of keeping people in a prison for the rest of their natural life? Where, where, do you think there are some crimes that are so heinous that that's, that is the acceptable and right thing to do?
2: Well, that's exactly what I was studying for my, for my PhD, and I interviewed some of the, the top people in the country, top people in criminal justice, um, who all had very different impressions, incredibly well-educated, you know, very thoughtful people, Um, there was definitely a feeling that for some especially judges who had been in that area then there are a number of people very small who should have that Um, whereas there's a lot of people saying you know, we can sentence for up to 30, 40, 50 years. And in a way, there's not a real legal need to say you will never get out and you should never be reviewed. And certainly, I mean, Europe's now ruled that we should have a review. And it does make sense to follow on either with, with the whole rest of Europe, but also in within our legal system, we do have this, this sort of idea of rehabilitation, at least as an option. And, and I don't see there any harm in reviewing. At, it can be, you know, in many, many years' time, you know, 40 years is a pretty long sentence for anyone.
1: There are some very comforting cases in America where the, the individual states, where they're, when they get 874 years in prison, I must say, I do find that for some of the people who are put up in front of the courts. For me personally, it's quite a comforting thought that they, they get 800 years in I prison. I just think,
2: comforting, maybe, a little bit nuts, you know, really, <laughs> 877 years. Someone recently go over, over 1,000. Who knows where medical science is going?
1: <laughs> who knows? And these are not good people,
2: Catherine. Yeah, you don't need thousands of year olds getting out, do you? I don't know what they might, havoc they might cause. Uh,
1: in, the, in the year since the, the Olympic Games, um, quite apart from becoming a, a doctor, you've also um, written the book I hold in my hands here. Um, the good people at Deutsche have uh, put it out. It's called Dreams Do Come True, although your name is much bigger on the cover um, than that, Catherine Granger. Uh, uh, well, clearly it's, it's a book about yourself and your life, much of which we've been hearing about in the last two hours. The difference is it hasn't been ghosted at all. And it, it's very rare. And if you Telling me you wrote every word of it. it is a very rare thing to do. What, what made you decide you were going to write your own book?
2: Um, I was completely naive in this world of publishing and world of writing books where I assumed... Naive as it sounds now, mm-hmm. if you write an autobiography, then you write an autobiography. So when I was, t- when, you know, I agreed to write an autobi- autobiography. I was then stunned when someone mm-hmm. said, "Do you want a ghostwriter? And I mm-hmm. said, "Well, then it's a biography. That just makes sense." And they said, "No, no, no, dear. no, no That's very no, literal dear.
1: interpretation of the world. I'm afraid, Catherine." Yeah. Well,
2: I, you know, I just that's how I saw it. So mm-hmm. I said, "Look, you know," and then I thought, "Well, maybe if that's the done thing, maybe I need to think about that." But then, I mean, part of it's a pride thing. You know, I've I've done a lot of writing in my life. I feel. I should be able to write a book. It doesn't mean it'll be a great book because it is my first book I've ever tried to write, but I want to do it. Um, I also, I want, I like a challenge, as I've said, so that was Mm -hmm. a good reason. But there was a massive thing that is a very personal thing to do. and, And rather than just my story, it's a story about a lot of other people as well. And I felt a really strong duty to them that if I'm writing their story as well for them, and, you know, it's something they haven't chosen to do and I'm sort of writing all these people into it who are part of my journey, then they need to be represented as honestly as possible as I can do and as fairly as possible as I can do. And I'm the only person that really can give that true voice to it. So, yes, it might mean it's not as slick and, and as great as, you know, authors who have published loads of books. But it's, it's my book and, it, and I stand by it. Fun to write or difficult to write? Or both? Both, probably. Um, yeah. Some bits were fun. Some bits I really look forward... You know, I really enjoyed going back. It's, you know, it's going back through old memories. You know, I sat, I genuinely sat at my computer. I had a beautiful... About 10 days I went up to Loch Lomond, near where I used to live, up in Glasgow. Um, there's this place called Cameron House Hotel, and it's right on the banks of, of Loch Lomond. And it's a golf course. It's very beautiful. It's very relaxing. I sort had my mini writer's retreat there. I sat with my laptop. And thinking i don't know how to do this but here we go just you know start with a year and you went and then some years i jenny sat smiling at the laptop as i did it like oh, oh that oh i forgot that oh it's so lovely and it almost the the process caused more memories to come i've got a good memory do you keep anyway. diaries? I kept some diary so I, I literally drove up to, to Loxone with the, this like box full of books and you know some of them are awful some are you know when I was very young went to the cinema you know that, kind of, that really useful diary oh. um, other ones from the other ones I'd forgotten sounds like Twitter now <laughs> oh, God, yeah, uh-huh. sitting in my car um, other ones were, were a little bit more profound and things I'd forgotten but I also genuinely had days when I was writing and I was in tears while I was writing it and, and it not the obvious stuff not sort of oh I'm going back through Beijing and how awful that mm-hmm. was but other things about people who you know, and you know, people who have passed away in my life or things have happened or moments that are actually I'd forgotten were just really quite emotional and, and so, you know, I I did this weird. I mean, you're sitting on your own, it's very solitary job in some ways. and Writing yet, is
1: the, the most solitary thing. It's yeah.
2: very solitary and yet I never really felt, I never felt lonely because I was suddenly with all these characters, that was great but it meant you could go through you know, these highs and lows weirdly just sitting on your own, it was very odd but I, I did enjoy the process. Well uh, it, 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 it's
1: actually a very good book to read and I enjoyed reading it in preparation for this show which takes us, we'll talk to a little bit in a while about what you might be going to do um, with, with, uh, with your rowing um, what about the fact that it's such an intense sport and such a an amount of training. You said from the moment you start the sport, you're in training. Um, do you think you've sacrificed a lot? Um, you, for instance, I, I think I'm right in saying you're single. Oh, uh, yeah, I am yeah. oh, yeah. um, uh, Do you think you've sacrificed a lot uh, from that kind of personal angle for, for what you've done for rowing?
2: Um, I talk about it a little bit in the book because a lot of people say, oh, what's the biggest sacrifice you've made? And, all oh, these sacrifices. Yeah. And I genuinely think they're choices. I have this real thing. They're not... They're not sacrifices in the way that you know some people sacrifice a lot in their lives. You know, I've chosen to do this. I've got wonderful things because of it. I've learned about myself. I've made amazing friends. I have had relationships, none of them have been very successful over the years. You know, yeah, they're, you're gonna, everything. You don't have to be a row for that to be the case. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I might have been single regardless. So you know, I I don't feel oh you know all these sacrifices I've given up. I just feel I I, I do. I I love my life. I'm proud of it. I'm happy. I just yeah, I just feel very lucky.
1: Catherine, you, you've you've got a decision you've got to make now because um, you've done a great deal in the sport of rowing. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be cruel here, of course Steve Redgrave is living proof of it. You've also reached an age where you can make a decision about whether you want to carry on with this or not. Have you decided yet what you're going to
2: do? I've honestly not, genuinely, genuinely not decided. What, what what what
1: what sort of things are you allowing to sway you back and forth?
2: Ah, uh, I get swayed the whole time. It's been it's been a year.
1: I really thought by now I'd know for sure. I mean, you have obviously still been training, but perhaps not as big. Have you or have you?
2: Oh well, I wouldn't say. I uh, I wouldn't call it training. I've been trying right. to keep fit, which yeah, is very okay. different from training for yeah. us. Okay. Um, just to keep the options open. But you know, I just I the wonderful thing is since the Olympics, I've never had time away from my sport for about fifteen years. So the last year. I've taken the year out, and every mm. single day I've done something different. And, you know, with our training, it's very predictable, very disciplined. Um, I know exactly what I'm doing mm. all the time, and I don't know why. For the last year, every day has been different. Mm. I've been different people, different places, different countries, uh, different experiences.
1: I greatly reached rock bottom this evening, of course.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I had nothing left to do, and I thought, well,
1: no, why, no, not, why, why not, why not? Yeah, scraping the bottom.
2: Um, so that's been brilliant, but it was also partly for me to 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 see if there's other things that kind of spark the interest, and suddenly made me think, do you know what? Oh God, this is really exciting. Because while you're training and competing full time, you don't really get to experience much else, and it's quite a narrow world you live in. And actually, for me, it was it was the healthy thing to open out and and do all this. Now, why I'm still agonising, is I've done things that I've loved. I've done things I'd love to do more of, and but I still I still haven't completely been able to think. Do you know what? I'm definitely done with throwing either.
1: Um, the last person I interviewed for this series, uh, Gary Player, was 78. So we were talking at this stage about looking back as at, at a long and fruitful life. You, of course, have still got the vast majority of your life um, ahead of you. Um, let's assume, well, with or without the rowing, what are the other things you'd like to, for, for that to happen in that life? What do you hope for yourself in, in the future, Catherine, insofar as you've thought about it?
2: um it, I would love to I would still have an interest in law I'd like to do something still in law I don't think I'd necessarily want to do it full-time but I'd want to keep the interest in there. Um, I've done bits and pieces of media which I've really enjoyed I'd like to do that um, some more. I'd do a lot with kind of young people and getting people involved in sport and I think sport will always be so close to my heart I also want to be involved in sport on some level um i I actually would like to write again uh, i what i 'd love to do is not write about me <laughs> to write about i I always thought one day I might write, but I always thought it might be fiction okay. so I wouldn't mind giving that a go back to the hotel Loch Loman for you away <laughs> for next ten years uh I'd love to do more traveling um there's a place I'd still like to go and, and experience rather than just go for rowing courses um i would I would you know of course I want to be in a happy relationship you know i, I haven't ruled out family as as well, and that's obviously a massive different step. Um, but I always grew up thinking that would be that would be what I'd have. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not something you can force, clearly. Um, but so so yeah. I mean, I need about ten lives mm-hmm. apparently.
3: You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports, My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening, and make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, and Spotify for more top Talk Sport content.